There's a, a few things that we're going to look at in this uh, passage and others, but kind of as a preface, there's a couple things that I think many of us would assume uh, as we enter into this discussion of what responsibilities we have to our pastor, but I want to give two, I guess, assumptions, biblical assumptions that, that we enter into this discussion with. Uh, first of all, elders are not a punishment, right? Elders are not a punishment, but rather elders are a gift from God to his people. Uh, Ephesians chapter 4, uh, you don't have to turn there, I'll just read it very briefly for us. But when speaking about the gifts that are distributed uh, among the people of God, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 and 12 says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Notice, when discussing the gifts that are given to the church, the, the word pastor, or the word shepherd, the term that is synonymous with elder or bishop, as we saw in 1 Peter 5 here, is mentioned. The elder is a gift from God to his people to lead, to guide, and to instruct as he would have. Not as the elder would have, but as the Lord would have. Uh, you may be like me when you were a kid, there had to have been a point I think this can be said of, of every child or teenager, especially as teenagers. Uh, there a point in your life when you said to yourself, I cannot wait until I get out from under the rules of my parents. I can't wait till I'm living on my own. I can do everything I want. There will be no one to tell me what to do. I do not want this rule over me. That's called rebellion, and that's a sin. All of us... By nature, we despise authority. We don't want to submit to authority. We want to be autonomous. We want to make our own rules and to live by our own set of rules and not by our parents and most certainly not by the Lord's. However, this is not the attitude that we're to take toward our elder. Oh, Lord, uh, help us to be rid of this authority. No, the elder is not a punishment, but the elder is a gift to the people of God. It is a blessing, not a judgment. And God, in giving us an elder, by giving us Ryan Hodson as our pastor, he has graced us with an immense gift, a gift that we are to cherish, that we are to encourage, we are to pray for, and we'll look at other things as well that we are to do for our pastor. And let me just say, I guess, by, by way of a disclaimer, uh, Pastor Hodson did not encourage me or instruct me in any way to, to preach this type of a sermon. This was done without his knowledge. I told him last week, by the way, this is what I'm preaching the next couple weeks. I hope that's okay. <laughs> um, so this was not something he instructed me to do, but ne nevertheless, I think all of us need to be reminded of what is our responsibility as church members to our elder. So of, of obviously we assume and we see clearly stated in Scripture that elders are not a punishment, but elders are a blessing. The second thing that we are to uh, see from Scripture is the elder is not the sole or final authority in issues that pertain to the church. There are many churches that are elder-led or elder-ruled, where the elders make the decisions, present their decisions to the church, and the church, whether right, wrong, indifferent, accepts the decision of the elders. That is not the way that God has intended for his church to be run. In fact, there are many, uh, there are a couple instances that we'll look at where God gives the authority not to the elders specifically, but rather to the whole body 
of the church. One of those can be uh, regarding church discipline. Matthew chapter 18, Jesus gives us instructions on how we are to deal with sin amongst believers. We are to go to that person when they have sinned against us. Uh, We are to, if we have sinned against them, confess our sin to them. Confront them with their sin, and if they repent, you have gained your brother. If they fail to hear you, take two or three others, that by the word of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. If they fail to hear them, then the next step in that process is to bring it before the church. Tell it to the church. It does not specifically say that we are to tell it to the elders, but rather we are to bring that matter before the church. And this is an issue uh, where God has given the authority, not specifically to the elders, but to the whole body of believers. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 1, we see a man, in, or the example of a man in Corinth who is committing a sexual immorality within the church. And the kind of immorality that was not to be named even among the Gentiles. And what did Paul say to the church? Hand this man over to Satan. Again, this was not an instruction given specifically to the elders within the church, but rather to the body at Corinth generally. So in the case of church discipline, the church has the authority given by the Lord. Also, uh, regarding doctrinal issues. Obviously, it is the, one of the responsibilities of the elder to protect the flock from false teachers. However, uh, there are many places today where there are uh, pastors or shepherds who are not doctrinally sound themselves and are preaching a false gospel or false teaching to the church. So in cases uh, like doctrinal issues or doctrinal impropriety or twisting the scripture, who is to protect the flock. We could look at Galatians chapter 1 and see the Apostle Paul writing to them, and he says, I'm so astounded, I'm, I'm surprised that you have turned from the truth to a false gospel. And what he instructed them to do was to regard that person as a false teacher, to be rid of that false teaching, and to recognize those people as under the curse of God. Obviously, this is something that an elder can do in calling out a false teacher, but greater than simply the elder doing it, that is something that we are all charged with, to note those who, fall, who teach a false gospel and to mark them as false teachers, because God has given ultimately the responsibility for doctrinal purity, not only to the elders, but to the body of believers. So... That being said, a church has a great deal of authority given by the Lord. So how are we to interact with our elders, seeing that the elder has an authority given to them by God, but also the church has an authority given to us as a congregation, including the elders, by the Lord? And let me just say this, in speaking of of the doctrinal issues and church discipline, I believe it is wise, and as our church constitution states, All of those issues are to be overseen by elders. Galatians chapter uh, 6, Ye which are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness. So they are obviously to be overtaken or overseen by spiritual men. And obviously our elder uh, should be one that falls into that category. Uh, But ultimately it is the church's responsibility. 
So in light of that, how are we to interact with our elder and what responsibilities do we have to our elder? The first one we'll find there in 1 Peter chapter 5, in verse number 5. He says in verse number 4, And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. I had uh, addressed this briefly in passing last week, but just as the shepherd is in submission to our chief shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ, likewise, in verse number five, likewise you who are younger be subject to the elders. Now, when it comes to verse number five, there can be a degree, a varying degree of interpretation and even translation of this passage. Uh, For instance, the NIV uh, translates this passage or translated this passage, they no longer do, Um, younger, submit yourselves to those who are older. And some people would make the case that this is a categorical charge for all younger people to submit themselves to those who are older. In fact, this term, uh, to refer to elders in this passage, is referred to in Acts chapter 2, talking about the old men, uh, and 1 Timothy chapter 5, referring to older women and older men. So this, this word can be used generally to refer to all of those who are older, or it can be used to refer specifically to elders, the office of elder. So how are we to interpret this passage? Uh, I would say the majority of the time it is translated as elder referring to the position, but as always, we need to look to the context to di- dictate for us what it is Peter is talking about here. Is he talking about older people? Or is he talking about the office of an elder? And I I think all of us would, in agreement, say, looking at verses 1 through 4, we see the office of an elder clearly addressed. And in verse number 5, there is nothing to indicate that he is changing topics. On the contrary, by using the word likewise, he continues his topic of addressing not older people generally, but elders specifically. But notice in verse number five, he says, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. This word, uh, be subject, is unique. No other place in scripture are younger people categorically commanded to submit to all older people. However, here, Peter commands the younger to be subject to the elders. So why does he specifically address the younger? Well, as I had stated before, the tendency of younger people is to reject authority. But, uh, those who are more aged, who have uh, lived longer lives, who have experienced far more, recognize that authority is something that is ordained by God. Certainly that can be recognized by younger people as well. But as young people, many, many of us have or had a rebellious streak, not wanting that authority. So he addresses the group most likely to rebel against the authority that God has ordained over them. He says, younger, be subject to the elder. Just as we would rid ourselves of any overseeing authority in our youth, as past, or like our parents or our employer or our teacher, uh, many of us who are younger, I consider myself young, um, many of us still have that tendency to push back against the authority that God has placed in our lives. And here Peter is reminding the people to whom he's writing, again, Christians all across this, uh, these five regions in what is now known as Turkey, um, to be subject to the elders. 
Not only does he address the younger, but in the following phrase, he expands that. And he says, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So here, Peter encourages and commands those of us under elders to submit to them. To submit to their leadership as they follow the Lord, we are to submit to them. Turn with me as well to Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13. And we'll look at a couple verses here in Hebrews 13 as well that address the relationship we are to have and the obligation we have to submit to our elders. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse number 17. Here the author of the Hebrews writes, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will, give, those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Notice he says, Obey your leaders and submit to them. Here the author to the Hebrews writes and uses a general term. He says, obey your leaders and submit to them. This word uh, leader can be generally used for anyone in a position of authority or anyone who governs or rules. He does not specifically denote elders as is denoted elsewhere in scripture. But if we continue on in verse number 17, we see that the work of an elder is specifically, well, generally described. He says, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls. One illustration, and very interesting, it's it's different to say they watch for you or they watch for your souls. There's a difference. I think all of us, uh, those of us who have children, at at no doubt some point in our lives, have left our children with someone who we trust to watch over them and to care for them. A couple years ago, Heather and I went to San Francisco for three days. I think it was Thursday to Sunday, Thursday to Monday, something like that. And we didn't want to take our children. It was our anniversary, and obviously uh, flights are expensive, and keeping, keeping an eye on children downtown San Francisco is not an easy chore. So we left them with the Campbells for a few days. And I'm still apologizing to them because Brooke got sick while we were gone, and it was a nightmare, I'm sure, for them. But we appreciate it. Um, there's a difference in saying... Keep a watch over my child for their physical safety and watching over one's soul. But the shepherd, the elder, has not only the responsibility, or not not simply a responsibility to care for our physical well being. That is not his job. His job is to care for our spiritual well being. Now, certainly, every good elder will be concerned about our physical well being. Just as uh, any one of us as a human being would care for one another as members of this church body, certainly the elder would take part in that attitude as well. But it is a much higher calling given to the elder in caring for the souls of this church than simply caring for our physical needs. So he identifies the leaders as elders by, by describing their work. They are keeping watch over your souls. But notice also... They are keeping watch over their souls as those who will have to give an account. As we stated last week, 
uh, one day every pastor and elder will stand before God to give account of how he led the flock of God. He will give account to the chief shepherd. First Peter chapter 5 and verse number 4, we saw that. When the chief shepherd shall appear, you will receive the unfading crown of glory for those who are faithful as shepherds and elders over their flock. They will give account to the Lord. And he says, for this reason, we are to submit to them. We are to obey our elders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over you, your souls. So we see that we are to obey, we are to submit. However, this is not a blanket statement given to submit to every single leader, regardless of what they tell you to do. Turn with me back to um, verse number 7 of the same chapter, Hebrews 13 and verse number 7. What God is commanding us here is not a blind obedience that does not challenge unbiblical motives or unbiblical commands. In verse number 7, he describes for us the type of leader, the type of elder that we are to submit to, that we are to follow, that we are to obey. He says in verse 7, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Notice this, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Much can be said about an, about an elder, about a pastor, uh, or any Christian for that matter, by looking at their life and many times by looking at their children. Uh, one, it is, it is the, uh, the, the utmost encouragement to see someone who has been a Christian for many years, who faithfully trained their children, who taught them the Word of God, whose, in whose home was the Word of God was preeminent and taught regularly and faithfully. And it is a great encouragement to see them down the road with children who are not young and coming to church, but children who are older and faithful to the house of God. This is one of the qualifications of an elder, one who rules well his own house. Because if he cannot rule his own house well, how shall he care for the house of the Lord? So we are to examine, consider the outcome of their way of life, and imitate their faith. Any elder worth his salt will be one who is saturated with the Word of God, who encourages us from biblical truths, not from personal vendettas or personal agendas or extra-biblical commands or uh, things by which he binds our conscience to his own whim and not to the Word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. This is the type of leader that God calls us to follow. A leader that is submitting to the Lord, that leads his flock to follow after God. And you may say, well, is our pastor that type of person? Well, I think we have already decided to a certain extent that we believe that he is. And his work among us as our elder and as our shepherd will bear that out. We are to examine him. We are to uh, follow the Lord and follow him as he follows God. So we're to submit, to give up our will in some cases for his will, 
to yield to him as he follows the Lord and as he leads us to do the same. The second thing that we are to do is not only submit and obey our elder, but we are to esteem our elder. Turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians 5 and verses 12 and 13. First Thessalonians 5, verse 12 and 13. Paul here is writing to a, what he considers to be an exemplary church. In First Thessalonians chapter 1, we see that the church of Thessalonica was an exemplary to all of the churches in Macedonia and Achaia. That was the, the northern and southern parts of Greece. They were an example. And unlike the church at Corinth, who Paul sought to reprove, to correct, and confront on many sinful issues in their church, uh, Paul does not specifically address the church at Thessalonica in that way. We see a confirmation of their faith that they were doing many things very well and doing it with the right motive, doing it with the right heart and spirit. However, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, we see something that Paul doesn't necessarily single out and say, hey, you guys are doing this wrong, but we see rather an encouragement and a request to the church at Thessalonica. He says, we ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. So Paul here encourages the Thessalonian church in their treatment of their elders. And again, although the term elder is not specifically mentioned here in 1 Thessalonians, we can see the office of the elder and the work of an elder Described. Notice he says there's a threefold work that the elders perform. Respect those who, one, labor among you, talking about their work, two, and are over you in the Lord, talking about their role, their office, and admonish you. So unquestionably, he is referring to the elders among the church at Thessalonica. And what does he ask them to do? He says to respect those and to esteem them very highly in love. Respect them and esteem them very highly in love. What does this word esteem mean? The word esteem means to hold in high regard. As he stated in the first part of that verse, to respect those. The word respect also has the, the connotation of acknowledging them. Um, to respect them, to acknowledge them. Um, Webster defines it as placing a high value upon something or someone. Just as one would cherish a piece of jewelry or a fine necklace or bracelet or jewel or diamond, we are to cherish or place a high value upon our leaders. But he doesn't just say esteem them. He says esteem them highly. And he says, esteem them very highly. This, um, this word, very highly, uh, is the combination of three Greek words to form one, what one person calls a Pauline, a triple Pauline superlative. In other words, he's saying, esteem them highly, esteem them very highly, but the underlying text has a connotation of a, a third level. Extreme, uh, esteem them exceedingly above highly. In fact, this same word is only used one other time in Scripture, and that's found in Ephesians chapter 3 and verse number 20. 
Many of us have heard spoken of that passage where it says, Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think. That is the same word that Paul uses here when speaking about how we are to esteem or to respect, to cherish our elders. We are not to just esteem them, and not just to esteem them highly, we are to esteem them super, very highly, above all of that. This is a command that Paul gives to the church at Thessalonica, and this is a command that I believe is appropriate for all churches everywhere of all time. We are to cherish, we are to value our elder. We are to esteem him very highly, but also we are to esteem him in love. There is some debate upon whether the word love is to be concluded with the word esteem or just to denote how we are to, are to super abundantly, very highly esteem our elder. So whether it is we are to esteem him in love, very super abundantly high, or we are to esteem him super abundantly high in love, I, I think there's not very much of a difference there. <laughs> the fact of the matter is I think it's obvious from this passage that God wants us to respect and to cherish the elder, the gift that God gives to his people. And we are to do that in love. And I think part, I think, was it the last sermon that Pastor Hodson preached here was about love? Speaking of love as the, the, the trademark of a believer, one of the marks that a believer bears on his life and the way he conducts himself and by what he does, he does it in love. That is to be the way that we cherish and esteem our elder. But notice, he also gives us the reason why we are to esteem him so highly. Verse number 13, and to esteem them very highly in love, notice, because of their work. We are not to give our elder respect or to value him or to uh, esteem him, as Scripture tells us, because of his personality, because of his ability to preach or how personable he is or isn't any given day. We are not to esteem him because of the ideas that he has. We are not to esteem him because of how cool he is. Or any of those personality traits that some of us would readily latch onto and say, oh, I like this person because of this surface thing. We are to esteem them because of their work. Again, looking back to the very difficult work that the elder has given by the Lord. We are to esteem him for his work. Not only are we to submit to and obey, we are to esteem or cherish, highly value our elder, but we are also to support our elder. Turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 5. 1 Timothy chapter 5. And immediately when turning to 1 Timothy, some of you may say, wait, wait a second. This was not given to a church. This was given to an individual. Um... How are we to gather something um, out of this passage that was written to an elder, to a pastor? Well, I, I think we'll see. 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 17 and 18. Scripture says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the Scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and 
the laborer deserves his wages. So here we see Paul writing to Tim- Timothy. The, he was an elder at the church at Ephesus. Uh, he writes to him, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor. Can we say, what, do, what does this mean? What does this double honor mean? Are, are all elders to be given honor and then this one elder or these couple elders to be given double? Is he talking about money? What is he talking about? Well, there, there is some degree of a variation of interpretation of this as well. Uh, some people say, well, this strictly is referring to monetary compensation. And in other words, what he's saying is here, we should provide for those who rule well uh, in, a, in an ample way so that our elder will lack nothing that he needs. He, he has plenty of what he needs monetarily. Others say, well, not, that's not quite what he's saying here. We are to honor all of our elders. But the one who rules well, we are too worthy, or, or, are worthy of double honor. And they would say this double honor means the honor or respect that we give to an elder, and in addition, monetary compensation for those who rule well. And then he says, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. I think the, the, the second is where I'm most inclined to come down on this passage and say, yes, all elders are to be honored, but the ones who rule well are to be honored both with respect and with financial remuneration, monetary gain to provide for their needs for them and their family. So in either scenario, uh, I believe Paul does address the issue of physical or monetary compensation based upon the two illustrations that he then cites in the latter part of verse 18. Notice he uses two illustrations. He says, first... Pardon me, I lost my place. You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. This is a citation of Deuteronomy chapter 25. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 24 and 25, uh, to some degree, address how we are to react with sojourners, with those who are not members or, or citizens of this, the country. And he says, You're, you, shouldn't, you uh, shall not go out and collect the remnants in your field. You shall leave them for the sojourner. And basically what he's saying is be benevolent to those who do not have what you have and share your goods with those who need. In Deuteronomy chapter 25, though, in kind of wedged in between two verses that are addressing people, he says, you shall not muzzle the ox when it treads out the grain. So why here is the Apostle Paul calling the elder an ox? Well, he's not. If you would turn, in fact, turn with me, if you would, to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9 addresses this, I think, uh, more thoroughly than does 1 Timothy chapter 5. But in verse verse 9 of 1 Corinthians, not 2 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse number 9, Paul says to the church at Corinth, for it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Well, I would say yes and no. Yes, obviously God is concerned about all of his creation and God provides for all of his creatures, whether the sparrow or we as humans. But to a greater extent... What I think this passage and what Paul is using this passage is trying to prove is that, 
Yes, there is an application to be made specifically regarding the ox when it treads out the grain, but there is a far greater application to be made among the church. Now, in Old Testament times, um, they would use, they'd take an ox, and they would have an ox in this ditch, and they would have an ox pulling a, what I'd refer to as a sled, with uh, heavy rocks attached to it, and they would throw the grain in there, and the ox would kind of circle around, and as he dragged that sled across the grain, it would crush the grain and, and uh, expose the good from the chaff, or the wheat from the chaff. And in that way, afterward, they would take the wheat, they would toss it in the air, and the wind coming by would blow away the chaff, or the husk, the part that is not good for food, and would leave only the wheat. But here, he says, when your oxen is treading out the grain, when it's doing this labor to separate these things for you for food, do not muzzle the ox. In other words, let the ox eat some of the fruit of its labor. Let the ox eat freely of what he would have because he is working for you to provide food and to provide your needs. In the same way, Paul uses this illustration to specifically um, refer to elders, to those who preach the gospel. Notice in 1 Corinthians 9 in the following verses, does he speak entirely, entirely for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Paul uses this illustration to tell the church at Corinth that as a, as a congregation, if one comes in and sows spiritual things, that they are entitled, they have a right to gather material things from the church. He says, we haven't used this claim. We haven't taken hold of this claim because we didn't want to be an obstacle to the gospel of Christ. But he says that this is ordained by the Lord, commanded by God, that those who proclaim the the gospel should get their living by the gospel. And as a church, it is one of our responsibilities to our elder to support him, to give to him monetarily as God has blessed us so that we can provide a living for him, for his family, so that he might do the work that God has called him to do among our congregation. Now, he's not to be, again, and we look, look back at 1 Peter 5, he's not to do it for greedy gain. The elder is not to be in it for as much money as he can get. And any good elder or pastor certainly is not in it to get rich or to build up and amass a, a great deal of wealth. But nonetheless, we are commanded to give as God benefits us so that he might enjoy the fruits of of his labor. 
So yes, God is addressing oxen here in, in a sense, and, and he was in Deuteronomy chapter 25. But in a far greater way, God is addressing those who care for his sheep. And he gives us this obligation that we have to care for our pastor and for his family. So we see that there is an obligation that we have to provide for our elder. Again, this right is not to be abused. And in fact, if there ever comes a time, and I, I, I hope and pray, and I do not expect this to be the case, but when our elder gets up and he says, man, I need a new, as, as uh, Steve Martin always says, my, my ashtrays are full in my private jet. I need a new one. Um, I, don't, I don't see that happening. But if there uh, comes a time when there is an abuse of this, then it is incumbent upon the leaders of the church to talk to our elder about that and to make sure that all of his needs are provided for, but that there is no greed or a shameful gain, a desire for shameful gain in any elder that we have. So we see that first illustration. Muzzle not the ox when it treads out the corn. The second thing, uh, illustration that he gives, I think is very self-explanatory and requires really no exposition. And here Paul or Peter cites, pardon me, Paul cites from uh, Luke chapter 10 and says, the laborer deserves his wages. I think that's really self-explanatory. You go to work, you invest your time, you invest your effort, you invest that, uh, all of your life, in a sense, to that vocation or uh, job, and you are deserving of the wages that you get from uh, that employment. So we see that we have an obligation to our elders to support him monetarily. The last thing is a very, very sober uh, topic, but we also are not only to submit to, obey, we are to esteem our elders, we are to support our elders, but lastly, we are to hold our elders accountable. We're to hold our elders accountable. First uh, Timothy chapter 5, turn back there with me, and we're going to look at verse 19 and verse 20. After his discussion of our responsibility to provide for our elder, He says this, Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. The last thing that we'll look at, and truly there can be more that can be uh, said of our responsibility to our elders, but just to kind of summarize our responsibility to our elder, we are to hold our elder accountable. And much like the way that we are to hold each other accountable as members of this congregation. The first thing that we see is that we are to protect the elder from slanderous or vindictive false accusations. Notice verse 19. Before he tells us how we are to hold our elders accountable, he specifically addresses what we are not to do. He says, do not admit a charge against an elder, except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. We are to protect our elder from false and slanderous accusations. Now, this is not only the standard for elders, but again, Going back to the Old Testament, we see that this was the standard not for the leaders, but for everyone. In fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 17 and verse number 6, that if one was to be put to death for their crime, that that was to be done 
on the evidence or on the witness of two or three. So this is nothing new that God is telling Timothy. This is not something new that is new in the New Testament that wasn't true in the Old. This is true not only old, not only in the new, but it is true for all time. We are to receive accusations not based upon one person's word, but upon the evidence of two or three. Matthew chapter 18, we see all this applied in the issue of church discipline. If you go to someone who has sinned against you, and you confront them about their sin, and they do not hear you, what are you to do? Well, I guess that's it. Am I, this right will never be wrong, and I guess you just have to leave the church and go elsewhere. No. He says, take two or three. That in the presence of two or three witnesses, every word will be established. So this is a principle that is true for all time. And I think it should be the way that we uh, apply church discipline, not on the evidence of one or two, or just one, but on the evidence of two or three. So why here is it applied to elders? If it can be said that this principle was true, past, present, and future, why does Paul write to Timothy and say, oh, by the way, this is how you're to interact and hold your elder accountable? I think there's a couple different reasons for it. One, uh, elders can be more susceptible to malicious slander and accusations because of the work that God has called them to do. Think about it. How many of you like it when somebody comes to you and say, you know what? You really messed up. You did wrong. And you need to get it right. I don't think there would be any of us in here that at first would say, oh man, I just love it when people come and rebuke me. So encouraging. I'm sure when police officers uh, pull somebody over or arrest somebody for wrongdoing because of a warrant they have, that criminal doesn't go, oh man, I was just waiting for you guys to come. Thank you so much for coming. I know I did wrong, and I, I know that there's a punishment that goes along with that. I, I appreciate the work that you do. No, that doesn't happen. So it is true with the elder. Because of the work that elders do, instructing, rebuking, uh, admonishing, confronting false teachers, elders are susceptible to more often have false accusations brought against them because of the work that they do. Not only that, but elders are, I think he applies this to elders because the flock is inherently dependent upon the elder for the shepherd. Matthew chapter 26 and verse 31, when Jesus was speaking of all of his disciples forsaking him, he used this illustration. He said, smite the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. And so too, by attacking the elder through false witness or slanderous accusations, much harm can be done to the body, the flock of God here among our church. So there are a couple different reasons why the elder is more susceptible to this. And Paul writes to Timothy, he says, do not receive these type of accusations. But in giving us this, he also gives us an exception. Do not receive or admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. I was reading uh, John Calvin on this passage, and he said this. He says, Whenever any measure is taken for the protection of good men, it is immediately seized upon by bad men to prevent them from being condemned. What Paul had said about repelling unjust accusations 
He modifies so that none may escape the punishment that is due to sin. So on the contrary, he says, do not receive these type of accusations, but on the contrary, you are to receive these accusations when it is given by two or three witnesses. So what are the criteria here for rebuking or admonishing an elder? Uh, First of all, we have witnesses. There are to be witnesses uh, uh, that can attest to the sin that is committed um, by the elder. And it is only in the presence of witnesses that the church or the leaders of the church are to receive an accusation against the elder. Secondly, not only do we have witnesses as a requirement, but there's a specific requirement uh, of the action inherently being sinful. Many people would say, well, man, that, that pastor just looked at me wrong. I can't believe that. Or he didn't say hi to me when I thought he should have. He looked right at me and never even shook my hand. Or he confronted me about something that I don't really necessarily think that I may have done wrong or maybe to the extent that, that I was uh, confronted about. All of these things, these are not sinful things. But he says, for those who persist in sin, in verse number 20, those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all. This is sin that is not confessed, forsaken, and rectified following the uh, adherence to Matthew chapter 18. And I would believe that that Matthew chapter 18, as it does for all time, would, would do us well to adhere to Matthew chapter 18 when addressing sin amongst each other and sin on behalf of our elder. And let me just say this, our pastor will sin. He will. It is not a question of if, but when. It has been said that even the best of men are men at best. This holds true for elders. Elders, just as every other believer, have remaining sin. And if our elder sins against us, it is incumbent upon us to go to our elder and to hash those things out, to have forgiveness, to have restoration, uh, so that we might have peace in the congregation. However, if the pastor will not hear a confrontation or uh, an effort, a, a humble prayer, a bathed effort to receive reconciliation, then we are to follow the, chapter, the, the pattern set forth in Matthew chapter 18. So there are witnesses that are required. There is sin that is required. Something that is uh, it clearly crossing a boundary drawn by the Lord and His Word. Uh, and so what, what is appropriate for that? Uh, we see in verse number 20, As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all. Appropriate for all those elders who persist in sin, regardless of being confronted, regardless of a humble um, approach by those who felt sin against or sinned against, we must go to him humbly, biblically, and I believe quickly. If, if our pastor sins against you or if any other member of this church sins against you, there should not be a long period of time before going to that person to get that thing right. Some have waited years well, that person sinned against me, and I'm just not going to go to them. I just don't want to confront them. I don't want to talk about it. And they let bitterness and that anger uh, grow inside their heart and, and ruin 
their effectiveness for the Lord and hinder their relationship both with that Christian and with God himself. So he says, rebuke them publicly. But why are we to rebuke the elder publicly? If there is persistent sin, why are we to rebuke them publicly? He says, so that the rest may stand in fear. It is of great benefit to the church to see those who are higher in honor or higher in rank held accountable for personal sin. Because none of us is exempt from reproof and from correction from the word of God. And our elder is no exception to that. He says, rebuke them that others may fear. It is not so we can point to our elder and say, oh, what a terrible person. It is so that we can look inside our own hearts and say, wow, that could be me. If I don't guard my heart from sin and from pride. And lastly, in verse 21, he gives this, these criteria. He gives the purpose of rebuking an elder uh, with a very strong appeal. Notice verse 21. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. He encourages them by stating this, all of these rules that I'm giving you, and we could truly look back and see other rules that God, or that, that God through the Apostle Paul gave Timothy. He says, all of these rules I charge you by the Lord in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging. What he's basically saying is you're not doing this simply in the presence of one another. You're doing this before God Almighty. And there is a great deal of sobriety and of seriousness that accompanies this type of rebuke. We shouldn't take it lightly. We should not uh, t- uh, take upon these things with any type of prejudging, declaring guilt before the accusations are heard from the witnesses that we must uh, require. And we're doing it before the Lord without partiality. So how are, what, what do these things mean for us? We have a great responsibility before the Lord. Truly an immense responsibility. You say, man, well, our pastor's got his job cut out for him. Dealing with me and dealing with my family and my kids. Oh, man, my kids. He's going to have his hands full. Dealing with my children. Yes, our pastor will have his work cut out for him. But let us never forget that we have our work cut out for us. Just as our pastor has a God-given obligation to the flock of God, so the flock of God has an obligation to, to perform uh, willingly and cheerfully and joyfully before the Lord. Each and every one of us. God has specific responsibilities that we are to carry out towards our elder. A second thing that, we, that I think we should take from this is that we must pray fervently for our elder that God would protect him and his family, that God would grow him, that God would mature him as he sees fit so that he might be the elder that God has called him to be among our congregation. And lastly, I think something that is that I did not specifically state throughout this sermon, many of these scriptures, and specifically speaking about the scripture from 1 Timothy, Paul assumes a plurality or a multiplicity of elders. 
Paul, writing to Timothy, says, you are not to receive uh, an accusation against an elder, assuming that there are multiple ones. One thing that I think God would have us do is pray that God would raise up another elder to assist our pastor in his work. An elder that is called by the Lord that does his work cheerfully and willingly, not of compulsion, not for greedy gain, not to domineer the flock, but to be an example to the flock of God. And truly, it is only God who can raise up such a person. It is not our own will. It is not the will of our family. It is not the will of uh, our, our grandmother or grandfather or anybody else. It is the will of God that we are to follow and to seek his will in, in raising up elders as he sees fit and in his time. So I would challenge you, uh, review these things during the week and ask God to help you and to help me carry out our responsibility towards our pastor and towards his family with the right attitude, humbly, not out of pride, not out of uh, being puffed up, as we heard uh, several weeks ago, but in love. Let's pray. Our dear Father, I pray that you would help us. Lord, truly, as we embark upon this new chapter in the life of our church, uh, you have a great deal that you have already taught us, but Father, we have a great deal that we must still learn. And God, I pray that you'd help us to be open uh, to the leading of your Holy Spirit. Uh, may we uh, judge our lives not by some man-made, superficial, uh, arbitrary guidelines, but may we examine our lives in light of your word. And may we truly judge ourselves, may you judge us by your word. I pray that you would take what we have heard in this hour, that you would confirm it in our hearts through your Holy Spirit throughout this week. And may we carry out the responsibilities that you would have for us to carry out in the way in which you would have us to do that. We ask all these things in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.